Hello and welcome to the Writer's Cookbook Podcast. I'm Christina Adams. And I'm Ellie Betts. And we're serving you with your weekly slice of writing advice. Yes, we are. This week we are discussing the nine biggest issues that hold you back from finishing your work in progress. And wow, there are some surprising ones in there. Yeah, what holds people back is often not what they think it is. Mm, I'm very intrigued. Shall we dive in? Let's go. thing that holds a lot of writers back then is lack of research why do you say research is one of the biggest reasons people don't finish their work in progress if you haven't done your research do you know your topic enough to be able to write about it particularly if you're writing about a theme you're unfamiliar with for example sometimes you need to research around it like for my current book I've been researching ancient Egyptian history for one of the characters who comes back 4,000 years later. Um, and if you don't know some of these things, it's really easy to get stuck and you don't necessarily realize that the reason you can't keep going is because you don't know this thing well enough. And sometimes say you've hit a plot problem, not necessarily a plot hole, but you're just not sure where to go next in your plot. It's A, because you haven't plotted up front, so you don't know what research you need to do. But B, also because you don't know what is accurate to that situation. So it's like if you're writing a romance and you don't know the structure of a romance or you don't know how someone who has been in a particular type of relationship in the past would handle a new love interest. Absolutely. And it goes further than that, I think, as well. If you consider characters, uh, what sort of research would you say is a huge help and potentially the biggest hindrance if not done thoroughly enough? I think background for your characters is some of the most important research you need to do, but probably the one people neglect the most, like they might research the time period or the location, but they will forget that there are patterns of behavior that people have and that's why psychology is a thing. You know, mm. there is a cause yes. and effect. To what happens to it for instance serial killers often start with mummy issues torturing animals and setting fire to things this isn't always the case <laughs> i know it's a great image <laughs> isn't it um but if you read mind hunter which is a great book and completely different to the series but i'd highly recommend it if you're writing crime or anything with a psychopath in then you will realize actually that the reason people end up in this place is because of a pattern of behavior and the way they were treated along with the way they're wired in the first place and who we are as a combination of nature and nurture and you know someone who's had a perfect childhood but is on the psychopathic scale could come across as normal and supportive but then actually you look at it and certain traits are still there but they manifest differently like the guy who did a bunch of research into psychopathy discovered he was on the psychopathic scale oh yeah. <laughs> but because he had had a loving upbringing he was able to have like healthy relationships and not a serial killer wow that is so interesting I think even people who haven't studied psychology at all like I think most people like me um can vouch for the fact that your childhood has an impact on how you live your life you know even in the most basic terms people 
crave stuff in their adulthood that they didn't have in their childhood and things like that so there's a lot to be said for that kind of research I think yeah um and it, the thing is childhood is a big one because everything is new and novel to us when we we're a kid yeah. and whenever something is new to us it's more likely to affect us going forwards than something we've done on autopilot a gazillion times like if you've driven from a to b a hundred times it's not going to affect you but then if you're doing a to b and you get into a car accident how you feel about that drive going forwards will change because that's a new experience for you. Like I remember when I was younger, we were going up this hill into a car park and my mom stole the car and the car started rolling backwards. And there were people at the bottom of the hill. And like, I was, I don't know, maybe I was like a teenager at the oldest. I was wrecking it at this point. Mm. And ever since then, I have been terrified of driving on hills. I used to really panic during hill starts in my driving lessons. So my driving instructor would make me do them more. But That's even, both cruel and kind, isn't it? I know. I should mention the people were fine, but the car didn't roll back more than a foot. <laughs> but I was terrified. I didn't know how cars worked at that age, you know? Of course, yeah. <laughs> I didn't care because I couldn't drive. Um, but ever since then, when I'm going up a steep hill, it terrifies me. Like driving to yours, there are a couple of steep hills and it terrifies me. Oh, bless you. I didn't know that. Sorry, I'll move. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> I'll work on that just for you. Thank you. <laughs> um, that makes perfect sense, though. I mean, these things have a lasting effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next topic we have listed here is plotting. Why would you say plot is a big reason people get stuck? Well, if you don't know where you're going, it's really hard to maintain momentum. Going back to cars, I have a weird thing for cars and baking analogies. Would you get into a car if you don't know where you're going? You know, even if you're using a sat-nav or you've checked the route online and printed it off or whatever, you know what your end point is. And if you know where you want your characters to be at the end, whether that's they've caught the murderer or they're with their love interest or everyone's dead, you know what you're working towards. And that makes it considerably easier to keep going because you've got something to work towards. And it may be that you don't know what you're going to see along the way, or you might know certain points like where your service stations are, for example, but you don't have to plot it to the nth degree. You need to just have a general direction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if this is relevant, but the only characters I can think of in stories who set off with no direction are the ones that are not going through a good time. But then it tends to be external triggers that impact them. Like in the Rose Gardner Mysteries by Denise Grover Swank, it is external triggers that trigger her internal journey. And she has a balance of both throughout the series. And that's what makes it so powerful. Um, And you really see how Rose goes from being a recluse that was treated utterly terribly by her mother and then goes on to become, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but she's like a completely different person working with people you would not expect someone who is afraid of her own shadow to be even thinking about, let alone conversing with and working with. And that's the important thing, isn't it? Your character has to go on a journey, whether that's physical or mental. You've got to know where they're going to end up, even if you don't know how they get there, what they're actually going to go through specifically. You know, there has to be a change there, doesn't there? Precisely. Number three we have on our list is tension. Now, all good books need tension. I think some of the ones out there that don't are the ones that tend to be not read or not finished, at least. I know I've (laughs) certainly put down a few in the last few months. (laughs) Yeah, if things are too easy for your character, people will get very, very bored very, very quickly. 
because the character has nothing to lose so the reader has no reason to keep going the more someone has to lose the more powerful their arc is going to be and that's why fears and flaws are really really important when you're writing because they're what holds your character back and also what humanizes them and makes them relatable Mm, absolutely so why would you say tension or increasing the stakes as some people call it uh, is important in every genre because if you start really really high you have nowhere to go and then your story goes like this and it becomes like one of those really high concept tv shows that were like this premise is great let's go let's do it and then by the end of season one people are like what is this shit (laughs) <laughs> Why was everyone so hyped about it? I don't want to name names. No, People who are familiar with me will know what TV shows I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, just look at the 2000s. There are a few examples from there. And I think a lot of um, producers now have learned from that mistake. And they know that if you've got a high concept premise, you need to have enough of a story beyond that premise to keep going. And that's really hard if you start with just the most ridiculously high premise and you don't know your end point and the two work really well because if you know your end point then you can kind of work backwards attacking my mic you can work (laughs) this is what I need to attach the shock mount um then you can work backwards and go okay this is another really high tension scene but this one's a little bit lower and you can move things around and piece them together Mm. like a jigsaw puzzle yeah absolutely and map it I find mapping it and, and seeing it physically you can pinpoint where it goes up and where it goes down and try and have a nice balance. Yeah, you... I used to do it um, on my coffee table using post-it notes and I would map out the peaks and troughs in the story. But now because I've done it so much, I can kind of visualize it in my head so I can bullet point it in Scrivener. And it's just That's a really case of I've done it so much, it's a lot easier for me to visualize, but I have to have those bullet points there because then mm. I've got the idea out of my head and then there is room for other stuff in there. Mm. I think another issue in terms of stakes is not increasing them enough Uh, you get some stories that start really low and never quite get high enough to raise that tension do you think yeah totally It, it is a hard balance because I think people can worry about not having enough tension they can worry about having too much and then they overthink it or overcomplicate it and it becomes really challenging and that can really stop them but I think that's why having fears and flaws is so important because people will only overcome those things when they are pushed to the extreme Mm. and it has to be sometimes even as a writer sometimes it can push you to uncomfortable levels even like some of the things I have put my characters through it was very challenging to write either because it was close to home or it would just really mean (laughs) there's that saying isn't there life begins outside your comfort zone maybe like stories begin outside their character's comfort zone maybe that's 100% do work out yeah, they really, really t- do. That's really oh, true. Do you reckon we can trademark that? <laughs> I think some <laughs> smart person's probably already said it. <laughs> um, our next issue then is a little bit more complex. Broken down, it's not knowing your audience expectations for your genre and also therefore not knowing your genre enough. Uh, why is it important to be aware of audience expectations before you start? Are genres even that important? So I know that when either you write for fun or you write for yourself, there can be really set a really strong sense of not wanting to be written into a box. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing this for me. My idea is a hybrid of this and that and that and this and all of that. But the blunt fact is, if you don't have a genre, you don't have an audience. You need an audience to sell to. <laughs> exactly. Because like it or not, people get attached to genres first, then the series, then the author. So it's a really long-term relationship that you are looking to build. 
And also when you are um, writing anything that's new to you, you have to know the rules before you can break them. So going back to my cake analogies, because I do love a good cake analogy. If you are baking a cake for the very first time, you've probably sticked to something really simple, like a tray bake or maybe a Victoria's sponge, right? Yep, that's true. But there, now I really want a Victoria's sponge cake. Mm. <laughs> and then... <laughs> As you become more experienced, you will start to experiment with flavors and shapes and decorating and all these different things you can do that makes your cake more unique. Yeah. But if you don't know the basics of what makes a good cake, then you can't break those rules because the basics of what makes a good cake don't change. You need to cream your sugar and butter and you need to get it to a certain consistency before you do anything else. And you need a certain type of flour for this type of cake and a certain type of flour for that type of cake. And that mm. matters, you know. It's, that makes sense. Yeah, it's no different than poetry in that regard because a lot of people panic about writing poetry. It's like actually there are rules to poetry and if you study those first, then writing poetry becomes a lot easier and a lot more fun and then you can just do whatever you want with it. Mm, that makes perfect sense. I recently started adding walnuts to my banana bread. Mm. Just saying, just saying. <laughs> um, but yes, I think with regards to these rules or at least these typical things you would expect to see, they vary very much across all genres. But if you read in your genre, I think it's very easy, or at least it's the, the best way I've found to pick up those rules. You know, you can get a rough feel for when certain things are revealed in a fantasy story, for instance, or you can pick up different ways characters are developed. Or like we were discussing the other day, how a slow burn romance is sort of, put across and the easiest way to do that is just by reading I think I mean reading outside your genre is also very helpful I would always say people should read outside their genre but you've got to make sure you know the genre you want to write in you've got to learn those rules first yeah totally and it's not just about reading it passively you need to read it actively and analyze it you're not going to learn these things by osmosis not without a good 20-30 years under your belt so you want to be cracking out the pencil and writing in the margins or highlighting on your e-reader. It pains mm. me to write I'm so in a glad you book. said pencil because I can't write in books with a pen. Yeah. But you need to be making those notes. I, I know one of our friends uses post-it notes on the page. That's another option. Um, messy. Yeah, but at least then it's not defacing the book and you've still got the notes on that relevant page. And I think you do need to be actively going, okay, she's done this at this point or he's done that here and thinking about why they have done it. Like one Absolutely. of the big rules in crime Absolutely. is to always introduce your opponent in crime within the first third of the story. Okay. I read a book recently that didn't introduce the kind of main opponent who was behind all the big bad stuff at the start. And he was actually only in a couple of scenes throughout the entire three book series. Was it three or five? I can't remember. It's three or five. And I felt really cheated. Mm, you have because no I never could have figured out who it was. And half the joy of reading something like that is to figure out who did it. And you can't exactly. do that if their part is like this. There you go. So this person either knew the rule or didn't know the rule. Uh, or, or like I said, knew it and tried to break it. And it obviously failed. Yeah, exactly. And then you get people like Agatha Christie who write stories and they make your head explode sometimes and you've got no chance of figuring it out, but she clearly knows the genre and can subvert it really well. That's why she's still so famous. I mean, well, yeah, exactly. She's the queen of crime writing for a reason. <laughs> exactly. There you go. The next topic on our little list here is overthinking. So overthinking is when you spend more time worrying about the words appearing on the page than 
spending time actually just getting them on the page. And I think overthinking is to do with people and their confidence levels. Overthinking can come from depression and anxiety sometimes, I think. I know, I, I mean, I'll, again, I won't name names, of course, but I know that uh, I know a lot of writers who have issues with those kind of things. How would you say overthinking impacts writers? I think the trouble is, like you say, overthinking tends to come from a place of depression or anxiety a lot of the time. And a lot of writers do have mental health issues. There is nothing wrong with that. And writing is very much an outlet for those issues. But if you're so afraid of that thing you want to do, that it holds you back, that's when you end up in this category. Because at the end of the day, if you want to write, if you want to publish, you've just got to do it. No one's going to give you permission to do it. No one's going to say that your first draft is like the next great British novel or whatever your country is. You know, it's a first draft at the end of the day. You don't need to worry about it being perfect or thinking about what other people think at that point. Yes, you need to know your genre, but that's not the same as worrying about what other people think because the first draft is about telling yourself the story and you can make it sexy in editing. Just focus on getting the story out of your head because it is taking up so much space that it makes it really hard for you to do anything else. And getting that first draft done is such a relief. Just such a relief. Get it down get it finished get to the last word even though you might have written that first and <laughs> yeah i write the ending last quite a lot actually i actually wrote the ending as you know to my current work in progress the other day hmm. so i ended up being how much really have you written of the rest uh very little i've written like two or three <laughs> other scenes <laughs> but it, that was the bit that was stuck in my head you know exactly even though i sat there and i thought well this is not exactly what i want it to be and there are parts of this that need changing but now that it's there a, we have that thing to work towards, like you said earlier, and B, I can worry about editing later. Yeah, <laughs> Just exactly. Just getting it out frees me up. It does. It very much does. And the reason that I often write the ending first is because I don't write in chronological order. I find that writing the kind of key moments of tension or the scenes I'm most emotionally invested in, which usually are the same thing, means that then because I'm so emotionally invested in it by that point, I then want to piece it all together to form a coherent story to show other people. That makes perfect sense. Because I like it so much. And actually, I have written one book in chronological order out of 15 15. 15 and technically it's a novella as well yeah wow that goes to show doesn't it i mean i I know different things work for different people but if you've got a particular scene stuck in your head but you're supposed to be writing a scene two or scene three just write the scene that's stuck in your head you know yeah give yourself a break yeah write what you want to write so long as it's within the kind of direction that you're heading in because it's all progress in the same direction True. I mean, I wouldn't say write the end of book three when you're still on book one. I, I think some people do write the ending of their series really far in advance because it's the same reason as writing the ending of the book is that well, you know yeah. exactly where you're going to. You know who you've killed off. You know who's married who. And so you're like, OK, I've got to get them to this point. But how do I get them there? And that's kind of where the fun plotting side of things comes in is the question yes. of how you do it. And how do we torch them the best? Yes, exactly. You looked very evil when you said that. <laughs> Sorry, it just it just comes out in me. You bring it out in me. <laughs> so we keep mentioning editing. <clears throat> it is a very, mm-hmm. very important facet of writing. Why is editing as you write such a bad thing? So if you edit as you write, it does two things. First of all, actually, it's three things. It slows <laughs> you down. 
because it's multitasking, mm. which means that your brain actually can't do either thing to the same quality level mm. because its focus is split. And our brains, brains even, are designed to focus on one thing at a time. Mm. Like if you're riding a bike and listening to a podcast, that's fair because they use different parts of your brain. But Preferably reading and writing, this podcast, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like reading and writing both require words and language usage, even mm. though one is analytical and one is creative. And so if you're trying to do them at the both at the same time, it becomes really challenging to get any words down on the page because you're like, is this the right word? Is that the right word? And if you're writing a poem, that's not such a bad thing. But if you're writing something much longer, you can worry about adding in those words to make it sound really cool and create the more evocative images when mm -hmm. you're editing. Yeah, but absolutely. you want to get the idea out of your head as quickly as possible because if you're editing as you write, as I said, it slows you down, but it also damages your confidence yeah. because you're second guessing everything you've said and done yeah. and you will improve as a writer and an editor quicker if you do them completely separately. Like, Oh, you mean like take a day to write, take a day to edit and alternate? No, I mean longer. Mm. like at the moment I've taken two or three months out and I am purely writing things I have not edited a thing since mm. I don't know when probably November it, no I edited some stuff this month but it was client work so that doesn't count all of my book stuff I'm just throwing ideas at the moment and I've got three novels three novellas sorry drafted in I want to say a month probably a little bit longer because some of them were half format ideas wow but I literally just was throwing things onto the page and during some writing sessions I was doing like three four thousand words an hour because I was just putting my headphones in with a right with a playlist related to my characters on my story and then just go okay this is the scene I'm going to write and then I just kept going and I write the next scene in the next scene mm -hmm. and I'm like I know I've got to rewrite some of these things but I'll fix it later because I yeah. I know if I am in a hundred percent editing mode I will be able to edit to a higher quality. So mm -hmm. the other thing is if you don't want to take like big chunks, I would always say once you've got that first draft down, put your book away for at least a month. Do not look at it. Do not think about it. Maybe go on to book two, but ideally go on to something completely different, a different series, a different medium, even a different craft if you want to. Something to completely emotionally detach you from it so that then when you do edit, you're completely objective. And the and thing fine. is... I've found is that the thing that sort of liberated me to some extent was just saying to myself this first draft can be as terrible as it needs to be like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter no one is gonna see it I think it was there's a quote from Stephen King and I'm gonna misquote him here obviously uh because I'm just that professional but basically the first draft is telling yourself the story and then you edit it to get the second third whatever draft to work out how best to portray the story to other people and that's something I really like to try and stick to because it's never going to come out perfectly and in fact I saw the other day on the writer's cookbook website there's a we have a blog post which I think is a little bit older now but it's still very relevant uh it's called the cake analogy why you should never show your first draft to anyone because it's it's raw is it's the analogy that it makes on the blog is that it's like baking a cake you know you've got all these raw ingredients and when you start putting stuff together it doesn't look like a cake it doesn't take, taste like a cake so stop showing it to people because it's not cake yet <laughs> yeah exactly like once you put all your ingredients together you wouldn't then show it to someone and go hey what do you think to this what do you think to how it looks what do you think to how it tastes i mean you might taste it but the cooking can still change the flavor of it right well exactly so... and there's no way you can properly predict how that cake is going to taste or look like looking at those ingredients 
Exactly. And unless you are dealing with a professional chef, they're not going to be able to tell you what the raw ingredients are going to look like when they're cooked. Someone like Paul Hollywood can look at approved loaf of bread and go, that's overproved. It's going to be crap. But your average person can't do that. No. No. And so you're better off waiting until you're done because you will get better feedback from people if you're showing something, showing them something that you have put your best effort into and you can't think of anything else to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. At the end of the day, like good things take time, like baking, particularly bread making, which I have a vendetta against, or writing a book. And yes, you can rapid release. And yes, there are people who can write really, really quickly. But those people have been doing it for a hell of a long time. Yeah, you're right. I think at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to complicate it for yourself. Um, but overcomplication of a multitude of things can affect a lot of writers, I think. You can overcomplicate your idea. And I think that can become a huge roadblock in your path to getting it finished. Uh, how, how would you say overcomplicating things stops writers finishing their work in progress? Yeah, I think it can sometimes be a case of, oh, I don't know this idea well enough, so I've got to stop. Or they come up with a very convoluted, overcomplicated plot that they, for want of a better way of putting it, are not experienced enough to write. And this is why I say do not write epic fantasy as your first book, because you'll probably never finish it, because it is more work. And the more work that is involved in that first book, the harder you will find it to maintain that momentum to keep going you know because you have to think about the magic system not just what people can do with their powers but what are the consequences of Mm. those powers and what are the limitations of those powers or you're trying to write a really complicated storyline and it doesn't work you know simple storylines are effective look at the remake of mad max that was very very highly regarded because it didn't try and go oh we're we're a really deep and meaningful action film it's like we're an action film we're gonna blow shit up and it works and it's a beautiful film it's a really good film because it didn't try to be something that it wasn't and it didn't overcomplicate anything sometimes that's the best way to be people don't always want the most in-depth plots and i think i think what you'll find actually is that most people just quite often just want a good story to read it doesn't have to be the most advanced the most intelligent the most complicated thing ever just has to be a good story and has to work Yeah, most people, you know, they read before bed, before they go to sleep. So if your story is really complicated, they're probably going to, it's probably going to help them fall asleep for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Which is not what you want. No, because that's not going to get you. Yeah, that's not going to get you the positive reviews (laughs) and a lot of readers. No. (laughs) One of the issues I hear people talk about the most is having time to write. What is your answer to this? My answer is really harsh. And it's that <laughs> I wrote, edited and published my first book in a year while working full time and moving house and still having a social life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is a case of prioritizing your writing because if you don't, no one else will do it for you. No, you absolutely. have to really actively make that time and look at those little pockets of time. Like, are you spending too long aimlessly scrolling through Facebook? Are you doom scrolling at night on your phone instead of sleeping or jotting down ideas or even expressive writing about what's keeping you awake? Are you watching loads of videos on YouTube of like baby goats prancing around? (laughs) Ellie. No. (laughs) And is that either helping you relax for half an hour or is it distracting you from being productive for half an hour? Because it's all very well and good taking a little bit of time to relax. You know, I take a break playing Planet Coaster, for example. 
but you need to find a balance between taking that time for yourself for those things that help you disconnect and working towards your life goals because if you're not working towards your goals then they're never going to happen when I first read what you put about that in your book productivity writers which I do have here for anyone watching the video <laughs> I'd highly recommend this book thank you there's a whole section in there though and about making time rather than mm -hmm. finding time like if you're trying to find time and waiting for the productivity fairy to turn up and grant you some magic time in the day it's not going to work um <laughs> but if you actively make time for it even if it's just 10 minutes a day you can do that i i would i would challenge anyone out there to tweet us their schedule and we'll find at least 10 minutes in it <laughs> i actually think taking 10 minutes a day is more productive than having an hour and it's because it it's be, easier yeah. to concentrate for those 10 mm -hmm. minutes particularly if you're not used to writing for long periods of time like a lot of online communities these days have productivity sessions mm -hmm. and they're never longer than 45 minutes because by that point it is a lot harder to focus and most people can get what they want to do done in 45 minutes if they've broken it down small enough like mm. when we have our writing sessions for example I will usually write a scene or two in 35 or 45 minutes depending on which we go with and by the end of that I am kind of starting to lag a lot of the time it's like okay yeah. I need I need a tea break now kind of thing yeah absolutely I like doing that shorter session because like I say, before the session even starts, we talk about what we're going to write that session. And then you're there. It's that accountability as well. But it's also saying for the next 35 minutes, this is what we're doing. And we are finishing it um, yeah. and just getting through it. Just getting through it. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't even need to be an accountability session. Sometimes it can be you're stuck in a really long queue. So you're going to jot ideas down on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. I've definitely done that in the past. Yeah, or, I used to write a lot of blog posts when I was on the tram going to and from work. A I lot do. of them were drafted on that tram on a note on my phone. A <laughs> lot of them. would carry around an actual pen and paper notebook because I find that easier to just jot random stuff down in. That would end um, badly on a tram, I think. But I would do it on the bus. But then oh. sometimes the bus would stop and I'd be walking off the bus mm -hmm. trying to finish writing what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I, I was known once or twice to stop in the middle of co-op and lean up against the shelf and just finish writing what I'm saying. But that's just me. I'm I'm the local weirdo. So <laughs> At least you accept it. Yeah, you've you got to embrace it, haven't you? True. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got to have confidence in yourself as well, I think. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, if you lack that confidence, you can feel like you don't deserve time to write mm. because it's something that you enjoy. So you actively push this thing that you love away, almost as a way of punishing yourself. But it just makes you feel worse, you know. Absolutely. Confidence is a huge issue that affects it probably is, a um, lot of really good writers that don't get a chance to be that writer. I tend to find the more confident someone is in their abilities – the worse they actually are at it. And the less confident someone is, the better they are, but they can't admit it. But they are also more open to the feedback and in improving. Yeah. But they have to get over first that kind of, oh, I'll never be good enough mentality. And that's a really, really hard thing to shake. What people don't always consider is that if you're unconfident as a person, it will affect your confidence as a writer as well. It's not just about your confidence in your writing skills. It's about your confidence in who you are because if you doubt that, then you're never going to put yourself out there enough to be criticised. Yeah. And you will get criticised. Yeah. That's part and parcel of writing, isn't it? Which I think is people underestimate how useful and 
how much you can learn from being criticised. Constructive criticism, I'm not saying go out on the street and get everyone to tell you you're crap, but I mean, <laughs> um, constructive criticism is invaluable. Exactly. And you have to be strong enough to be able to take it. And that only comes from really doing some work to look into why you're not as confident as you could be. Because you need to get to a point where you really believe that you are worth putting that time and effort into your goals. Which is difficult. I mean, I'm personally a very logic based kind of person. So I have to prove things to myself before I really believe them but everybody's different aren't they yeah how do you work around that logic in terms of building your confidence then there's two main ways either seeing someone who I can see similarities with myself in and seeing that they've done it um saying well if they can do it I can do it (laughs) as it's easier than said than done but I think it's definitely a good technique but I think also just pushing myself to prove it to myself um, yeah, I may not believe that it's going to go very well, but how will I know until I try? Do you see what I mean? And having supportive friends around to push me in that direction is very helpful as well. But confidence is not easy to gain. I don't know about you, but I struggle with it. Oh, totally. Um, it's really funny, actually. I have a lot of conversations like this about people and I tell them that I don't have any confidence and I'm like really anxious all the time. And they're like, no, you're not. You come across really like bubbly and talkative. I'm like, no, if people talk to me or I will talk back, but I'm secretly terrified of everything and I've just (laughs) learned to deal with it you Mm. know I read a book a few years ago called The Confidence Code and I forget the authors it's Katty Kay and I think Claire Shipman and what at least one of them's a BBC journalist and one of the things they said that really surprised me and I'd never thought of before is that anxiety is the opposite of confidence right because anxiety is fear and it holds you back and you're too scared to do stuff but confidence when you're confident in your abilities, you will go ahead and you will do things. And, you know, it's a sliding scale. Sometimes you'll be too scared to leave the house. Sometimes you'll be running a marathon. You know, that can vary on a day-to-day basis and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with your confidence levels changing depending on if you've had a setback or if you've got chronic pain and you're having a bad pain day or if you've woken up with a headache or you haven't slept well or you've just lost a loved one or your depression is flaring up and you don't know why. If you need to take that time to rest, to recalibrate before you do something and put yourself out there and make yourself Mm. vulnerable, then that's totally okay. Absolutely. You've got to work with yourself at the end of the day. I know that sounds cheesy, but you've got to make allowances for yourself in some regards. Yeah, the more you do it, the more then you are able to do those things that require confidence when you don't feel particularly confident. Mm. Well, that sounds like a really fantastic book recommendation. Thank you. And that was all of our nine reasons as well. I'm going to go make a cuppa now. I'm going to from my cookies that I made. Definitely coffee time. I can't get the lid up our coffee jar, so I'm not going to drink it for a while. <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> yeah, time to crack out the PG tips and finish off our cookies. All right. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.